Well, here it is, Friday evening. Happy almost Sabbath. It's time for our Sabbath story. Hippos and Herons is the title of our chapter today. Medically speaking, the world of the Amazon was one of primitive ideas, superstitions, and practices. Disease was rampant. In some of the larger cities, there were hospitals, but most of these were antiquated and outmoded. In the Amazon Valley, medical care was a luxury, available chiefly to those aboard the ocean streamers heading up from Belém to Iquitos in Peru. With their tourist passengers lining the decks to gawk down at the natives along the riverbanks, the travelers and the river folk were truly worlds apart. When one of the native Indian women has a baby, she simply squats down on the ground and the child is born, then she gets up takes the baby down to the river to give it a bath, and goes back to her work. It is the prospective father who apparently goes through the greatest ordeal. At the time of the birth, I have actually seen this a number of times, the father wraps a white towel around his head, he gets in his hammock, and stays there for two days. <laughs> oh, the Indian, <laughs> I don't understand that one. The Indian women did not, and in the most cases still do not, have a midwife or medical care of any kind before or during childbirth. The midwives who worked along the river were usually wildly superstitious and dirty also. They arrived with a pair of dirty scissors to cut the umbilical cord. Then the shears were put under the mother's bed where they must stay. Once when Jessie picked up the scissors, the midwife was furious and told her, the baby would have an infection and die because of what my wife had done. Of course, it didn't. There are as many superstitions as there are diseases. Some of them go back to folk ideas found in lands all over the earth for hundreds, even thousands of years past. They can be mighty unpleasant in the 20th century. In one better class family, one of the children had an attack of asthma. The mother got one of the boys out on a horse and made him ride it back and forth at a gallop until the animal was covered with lather. Then she took a table knife and scraped the lather off the horse. That was the medicine taken internally for asthma. Oh, my goodness. Horrible thought. Bear with me one second. I'm going to put some kitty food out for There's a little feral kitty out there. Um, little gray boy. So sweet. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I have a heart for those little guys. Okay, let's see. In cases of measles along the Amazon, members of the victim's family would be, and still are, sent out to follow a dog around until they could get some of the droppings. Of this, they would make a tea, which then would be given to the children to drink. Oh, oh, I can hardly read it. One of our workers called in a midwife in Manaus to deliver his wife's baby. The new mother noticed that the midwife was cooking something, and when the midwife began to feed spoonfuls of the brew to the newborn infant, the mother asked what it was. Oh, this is a tea I make out of cockroaches, the midwife told her. It will make the cord fall off much faster. The horrified mother got her child off this unsavory diet in a hurry. One of our friends told us of a boy whose lower jaw had become infected after having been fed this tea. The jawbone was in such bad shape that the doctor was able to lift it out. He put it in alcohol, cleaned the boy up, and sent him home. 
The mother returned furious, and this so-called doctor said, Well, all right, I will put it back if you so desire. Within a few days, this boy died. Oh, dear. In some of the wilder areas, the techniques of treating snake bites still involve the charring of the bitten area over an open fire. This is one of the most painful treatments ever dreamed up by man. But if the patient survives the shock, the method does seem to neutralize the poison. Uh, many times we saw people along the Amazon with missing limbs. It's often because they underwent this treatment. The need for doctors on the river was obvious and urgent. For many did not want to come to an area where there were few paying victim patients. I almost said victims. Few paying patients and virtually no modern facilities and technical laboratories. There are, of course, many snake bite cures sold in Brazil, as there were in the old days of the West. Printed right on the label of one of the most widely sold remedies is the legend about how it was discovered. The developer's goat was bitten by a snake, the story goes, but ran off into the woods, ate of a shrub, and suffered no ill effects from the bite. So the next time the, boat, the goat was bitten, the owner followed it to the bush, and when the goat again recovered from the bite, the man realized that he had something. He at once began to brew a medicine out of this shrub, and his secret elixir, by which it is claimed thousands have been saved, was widely sold. We didn't know much about tropical disease, and our remedies were few and scanty, but they were a vast improvement on cures compounded of old wives' tales and witch doctors' incantations. The principal diseases we encountered were malaria, yaws, tropical ulcers, cancers, hookworm, and other tropical infections. The people do not plant their food. For the most part, they simply eat what grows in the woods, and their diet is not usually properly balanced. Malaria fever was the terrible killer we had to deal with first. The two types most prevalent along the river were the vivax, or tertian type, and the phalacturium, or malignant type. The former comes in violent attacks every other day. The latter comes every day and can be fatal in a few days, but... If treated properly, it can be arrested and does not need to recur. There were times during our first years when almost everyone along the river had one or the other. I remember one village where every single person was ill with it. Everything in the town was closed up. It was like a village of the dead. Dogs were barking, and somewhere in this straw-roofed world, I could hear a baby crying. We found the house from which the sound was coming, and we called but got no answer. When we pushed back the straw mat that hung over the door, we saw a terrible sight. The hammocks were filled and other people were lying on the floor. The only living thing in this house was a five-month-old baby. It lay in a hammock at the side of its dead mother. We got it out of the house and into the care of a good family. The youngster has grown up without knowing anything of that tragedy or how close death was in that terrible epidemic. Another child in the same village, a ten-year-old girl, who was also suffering from malaria, told us how her mother, father, and older brother had died. There was no one left to bury them. So the girl, weak as she was, had dug shallow graves and dragged the bodies of her family into them. She had scarcely crawled back into the house when a dog came and, rooting, came and rooted up the bodies and began dragging them back and forth in front of the hut. If these things sound shocking, it's because this is a shocking world and a shocking set of conditions that we faced. These people who were dying and helpless were human beings. We had come to help and to save, and we knew that we could not help them or save them spiritually until we could help them physically. When we got back, 
to Beiling after our first trip and told other officials of what we had seen, everyone agreed that we should throw ourselves into medical work as quickly as possible. Jessie, of course, was a trained nurse and had a good grounding in medicine. I was an electrician turned minister, but the moment we reached Beiling, again, we began our medical courses by getting a hold of every available book on tropical medicine. The one I found the most helpful was a volume published in Africa called Medical Handbook for Tropical Diseases, written in layman's language. It was at the same time accurate and precise as to treatment. We were never without it on our lunch from that time on. In Beiling, we not only studied medicine, we began to gather up medical supplies on a sizable scale. We wanted all the equipment and medicines we could get. Some we bought out of mission funds, some were gifts, and some were wheedled from the Brazilian government. Our church, which had grown tremendously, helped us. Many nights in Beiling, the members of our young people's organization, they would gather for a medicine wrapping night, sitting around the table and filling capsules with quinine, literally thousands of them, while others would measure out doses of Epsom salts. We used different colored papers, red, blue, yellow, and white, to indicate the size of the doses. These would be arranged in boxes so that when we were treating a patient, we could just reach into a box and pull out a dose of the proper size. I learned a great deal about medicine as a result of these years when Jesse and I were literally the only medical help thousands of people had for thousands of miles. I did because I had to do. We did because there was nothing else to do. We learned because we had to learn in order to help them. We are not surgeons, but we operated when there was no one else at hand to try to save a life. We are not chemists, but we performed some chemical analysis. We did whatever a doctor does. In later years, the scope of our work broadened. We had considerable medical training in the Adventist Hospital and Medical Center in California. It had not been planned for us to do this medical work. We had gone to the Amazon for a totally different purpose. But we had found a need, and it had to be met. There is no time in the jungle for debating the ethics of the medical profession. Here is a man who goes into the woods to cut rubber. A bushmaster snake attacks him. He lifts his large knife and slashes the snake in two, even as it is springing, but the part with the head and the fangs continues its forward thrust and strikes him near the heart. Before we can get to him, the man's dead. The case might well stand as a symbol of the emergency, the immediacy of needs, wherever we turned. Perhaps in a second place, after malaria, among the tropical diseases of the river is hookworm. Not a killer, it is almost as bad, for it saps the strength and makes the individual indolent and without ambition. The result is a kind of poverty and despair we found in so many of the districts we visited. Hookworm is contracted by those who go barefoot, as many people do in Brazil, and they have done for centuries, and they continue to do. It's a parasitic worm that gets in at the bottom of the feet and works its way up to the stomach, where it develops. Failure to dig proper sanitary facilities is responsible for the spread of the disease. One of our first jobs was to teach the people to dig toilets, which must be done in order to control hookworm. Now... Brazil's public health officials supply seats made of supply seats made of cement for these toilets and give them to the public in these districts. In addition, animated cartoon movies are shown 
to impress on the people's minds the importance of owning toilets. Yaws, too, was one of the terrible diseases we found wherever we went. We saw hundreds of people, natives and Indians and nationals of varied blood, with sores all over their bodies, on their limbs, their feet, their hands, sometimes even on their faces. We were in a place where whole families, parents and children alike, lay helpless in their hammocks because the sores on their feet were so terrible they couldn't stand. Some of them had been prisoners of their hammocks for as long as three years. Oh my. Yet with a few injections of penicillin, they were up and around again. Now there are other infections and tropical ulcers, however, which are not so easy to cure. One of them is trachoma, which attacks the eyes, brought to the Amazon many years ago by the migrating Japanese. It spreads like wildfire in a country that might have been made to order for it. People who used common towels in public restaurants, drank from communal cups, and in general lived under poor sanitary conditions spread trachoma widely along the Amazon. Then, because it was usually not properly treated, it brought on blindness. One night we were holding a dedication service in the large top floor room of one of the few three-story houses along the river, and just as the meeting was breaking up, I looked out across the stream in the beautiful moonlight night, and I saw four men paddling across it in our direction in a large canoe. When they were close enough, they called up to me from their boat and asked if I was Senor Leo. They had been sent, they told me, by a man named Cornelius. What does he want? I asked. He and his family are all sick. They have sore eyes. They are in terrible pain. They want you to come over and treat them. It was late. So I told them that I would leave early in the morning and be there by daybreak. They insisted on staying so that they could direct me. They hung up their hammocks in the big house and went off to sleep. Early next morning, we piloted the Luciero across the river, around some islands, into another beautiful stream. It was a place of flame-colored birds and little further along herons, great white clouds of them ahead of us in flight. At last, we reached the home of Cornelius, a successful dealer in rubber and other products along the Amazon. He apologized to Jesse and me for having disturbed us, making us come so far, but we are sick and we do not know what to do, he added. Some of us are now almost blind. We hadn't had much experience in treating eye trouble, so we prayed for special guidance in this case. Then we examined all these people and found that they all had what appeared to us to be trachoma. The best drug we had available to treat this, we figured, was sulforthiazole. So we counted out 60 of these pills for each man, gave them all instructions about the proper dosage, and Jesse warned them, as soon as you can, get down to the city to an eye specialist or you may lose your sight entirely. Do you understand me? Jessie's tone was firm, but her brown eyes were gentle. Our patients, impressed, we thought, assured us they would follow our advice. In every respect, they thanked us profusely. And they stood waving on the dock as we pulled away. Four months later, on our return trip, I stopped to hold another religious meeting in the three-story house. And again, as we were finishing, I looked out and saw four men drawing near the boat. Once again, they said that Cornelius had sent them. What's the matter now, I asked. Didn't they go to town? and have their eyes treated. Oh, they are all well now. They have no trouble with their eyes anymore. They want you to come over and have a praise meeting to give thanks, the spokesman smiled. They didn't go to any specialist. It was your pills that did it. So once again, the white Luzero crossed the river, passed the islands, and tied up at Cornelius's dock. While I set up our projector and showed a motion picture, the first that they had ever seen, Jesse, 
who had seen it many times before, wandered from into another room. There she found four women. Why aren't you watching the movie, she asked. We can hardly see, one of the women answered. When you were here, you treated the others, but not us. This time, as Jesse hustled about handing out sulfathiazole pills, we didn't have to wonder whether we were doing the right thing. We had talked. Meanwhile, to I specialists and learned that this is the exact drug they use for trachoma. One of them had told us, by giving them that drug, you may have saved them from lifelong blindness. Even in the far back streams of the Amazon, word gets around fast. People always managed to get word to us when they needed us, when they were expecting a baby. They usually let us know well in advance. Of course, obstetrics was Jesse's special department. In one case, we had run all night long to get to an expectant mother. In time, Jessie in her crisp white nurse's uniform was busy inside with a woman while the father-to-be and I were waiting on the deck of the boat. Have you thought of any name for your baby yet, I asked. Oh, yes, we have a wonderful name, the man answered. We are going to call him Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, that's a fine name, I said. As we were talking, Jessie came out of the house with a new baby in her arms. I'm afraid she left. You'll have to call this one Eleanor. <laughs> The malaria and the hookworm and the yaws were bad enough in our early years, but what hit us the hardest, I think, were the terrible injuries from alligator attacks. I recall one case of twins. Each of them lost a leg to an alligator. They used to joke about their plight, saying that since they were the same size shoe, one had a left shoe and the other a right leg. One had lost a left and the other a right. We only need one pair of shoes. Somehow it never seemed very funny to me. Not too untypical was the case of Rachel, the oldest of a family of 12 children living along the river. She had gone one day to the bathhouse, which all the Amazon families have in front of their homes. As she washed some clothes, a huge alligator came along and grabbed Rachel by the hips. Fortunately, its under jaw caught in a board under the bathhouse. And when it tried to pull the little girl into the water, it found it couldn't without pulling in the whole building. This was impossible, even for such a huge creature. And while it threshed about in the stream, one of her brothers heard her screams and came running. As he began to hit the alligator over the head with a club, it made one last effort to pull the girl and it failed. And finally, its teeth pulled away, tearing all the flesh on the girl's thigh. <gasps> when we got there the next day, we patched up Rachel's terrible wounds the best we could gave her an injection of penicillin. Happily, she recovered without infection developing. Accidents of this sort, which seemed so horrible to us, they're commonplace there. The people grew used to it and accustomed, too, to their own courage in the face of these dangers. A little woman came to our boat one day to tell us her story, although she knew we could do nothing about the empty sleeve which dangled from one thin shoulder. One night she said she was asleep in her hammock when suddenly she was awakened by the shrill screams of her baby. She got up quickly and lit the kerosene lamp. There by the flame I saw my baby with its arm in a big alligator's mouth. I didn't know what to do, but I prayed for God's help, and then I was impressed to pick up one of those long poles used in our fireplace. It was red hot at one end, and I put that in the alligator's mouth just beside where it held the baby's arm. The alligator made a terrible sound and opened its mouth, and I was able to grab my baby away. But as I reached down to pick up my baby, the alligator gave a lunge and grabbed me by the right arm at the shoulder. Then it started to carry me out to the river. When it was trying to pull me through the door, I prayed again for strength. I reached out with my left hand and caught the doorpost, and it could not get me through. So 
So it gave a mighty jerk to dislodge my hold and tore off my arm. It bled terribly. But fortunately, neighbors came. They have an outboard motor on their canoe. It took me to the city, and there the doctor fixed up my arm and saved my life. Where did you ever find the courage to struggle with that creature? We asked him. I forgot myself, the woman said. My one thought was to save my baby. Many times we saw examples of this kind of valor in the boys who had lost their legs to a ferocious 22-foot alligator and in this woman who had saved her infant. There was the case of one elderly lady whose daughter was ill in bed. It was flood time, and the water was well over the riverbanks. When we came up in the front of the house where the elderly woman lived, there was a stream about a foot deep flowing right through her house, and we could maneuver our boat to within one, about ten feet of her door. She stood there in the door crying out that her daughter was sick. Could we please do something to help? How can we get in? I shouted. We can't get our boat in any closer. Just stay there. Can you hold the boat there? I said we could. The old woman said, wait, please. The frail old woman turned and went into the house. In a few minutes, she appeared at the door, carrying in her arms her daughter, a girl much bigger and heavier than the mother. Before Jessie and I realized what she was doing, she was wading into the water, lifting the girl into our boat and climbing in herself. We carried the girl into the cabin and found on examination that she had malaria. We gave her a quinine injection and supplied the mother with medicine to give her daughter until the fever subsided. The mother's beaming smile of gratitude more than repaid us. We helped her get the daughter back into a hammock on the partially flooded house and went on about our work, warmed in spite of our water-drenched clothes. So the work we did developed and reached out to more and more people, despite the drama of individual cases. The main element of our program lay in training the people to be aware of their own medical needs. This plan eventually led to the organization of clinics and hospitals, a later phase of our work and our story, and to the development of our program for more launches and their operators. Most of these latter were not foreign missionaries like us, but nationals. It was our idea that Brazilians should take over this work wherever possible. They did not need outsiders once they learned. Many of the people with whom we dealt had no idea of medicine or what it was for. In those beginning days when we pioneered along the river, scores of these folks were terrified of our treatment and wanted to stay with the old ways, even though these meant continued sickness, pain, hopelessness, and death. We had to teach the basic principles of hygiene before we could begin to make headway. Hundreds of times, I watched Jessie clean and shining in her white uniform, talking pregnancy and childbirth and infant care to a group of women to whom modern medicine was as mysterious as nuclear fission. Jessie held cooking classes for the Brazilian housewives along the Amazon. There was more to these lessons than a new way to cook sweet potatoes. She was able in this way to introduce new ideas of hygiene and cooking much of what we taught at the beginning was elementary. The need for proper sanitation and cleanliness, for taking care of the teeth, all of this was part of the early preventative program we introduced. Later, working with Brazilian health officials, we assisted in expanding the program over wide sections of the country. In our work, As our work progressed and we became better known, the people of these isolated communities would be waiting for us when our boat dropped anchor. Their sick would come to our clinics on the Luzero, case after case. Often, there would be long lines of these people waiting their turn. 
Many times we would inoculate a whole community against smallpox or some other disease if there was danger of an epidemic. Some of the cases we treated had their humorous overtones. One day, a black-bearded man came on board. Captain, is it all right for me to shave now? He asked. Well, why haven't you been shaving? Well, I didn't think I was supposed to. I took castor oil two weeks ago. <laughs> hmm. I recall another event during one of our improvised clinics on the boat. We had arrived late at a community quite far up the river, but there were many persons waiting to be treated. One was a man who had brought his 12-year-old son for us to look over. I don't know what's wrong with him. He, he eats dirt and sand and everything, the man said. Jesse examined the boy, then told the father, This boy has hookworm, that's all. She gave him a remedy for this disease, which we always carried in a healthy dose of castor oil. See that he takes this at 5 o'clock morning, tomorrow morning on an empty stomach, she directed. I can't do that, the man said. We don't have any alarm clock. And how will I know the time? Do you have a rooster? Jesse asked. Well, of course. Well, when the rooster crows, give him the medicine. He agreed to follow instructions, and several months later, when we stopped by again, we asked how the boy was getting along. Oh, he's fine now, completely cured, the father said, but the rooster died. After we gave him that medicine like you said we should. <laughs> Excuse me. After the rooster crows, gave him the medicine. <coughs> oh, that is so funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. It would kill me laughing. We spent many long days treating scores of patients and giving injections while I perspired through shirt after shirt in the intense heat. For a long time, I was hesitant about using the needle and would leave this to the more experienced hands of Jessie, although I would help her with the prep. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh about that poor rooster. <laughs> oh, okay. Although I would help her with the preparations and knew every detail of the procedure, I was perfectly capable of giving injections, but I kept finding excuses until one day, Jesse simply left me alone with the patient, and I had to do the job myself. I really sweated then from nervousness. But the lad held out his arm, and I hid my inner emotions and gave him the injection. When I finished, the boy's pal, who had been looking on, inquired eagerly, Did it hurt? The younger lifted his head disdainfully. How could it hurt when it was given to me by an experienced man like Senor Leo? Perversely, I suppose, this was to, be, to me one of the most important moments in all our years on the Amazon. From that moment on, I had no worries about giving injections. In a sense, I got my medical degree. I had it on the word of my patient. As we went along on our trips up and down the river almost every evening, we would hold services, usually in some country store or village or farmhouse. Many a so-called village is actually only a store to which people come from the surrounding area. One evening, we were to have a service in a home, but so many people came, close to 300, that we had to hold it outside under a giant mango tree. We put up our wires, showed our films, sang hymns, and I gave the sermon. It was afterward that we were told of a terrible epidemic in smallpox not far away. Everyone present needed to be vaccinated, and we actually set up an assembly line that night. We had them all bare their right arms as one of our helpers wiped each arm clean with alcohol. Jesse and I put on the vaccine and scratched the arm. This way, we were able to handle several hundred individuals in something less than an hour. Even so, it was after 11 by the time we had treated the last person. Then we had to take down our wires, pack up our equipment, get it into the boat. As we shoved off, all 300 people crowded around on the riverbank and asked us for one more song. So we stood there on the bow of our boat and sang the familiar, God be with you till we meet again. It was a deeply stirring moment. 
as our boat pulled away from the shore. We could hear a tremendous chorus across the night. Come back soon. Come back soon. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsel, God uphold you with his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. I'll see you in the morning, brothers and sisters. God bless you.